From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the program, we'll talk about the one, most, one of the most misunderstood but important animals that call Mississippi home, the bat. Often associated with blood-sucking vampires, we'll dispel those rumors and talk more about the Mississippi bat with Dr. Nicole Hodges, coordinator of the Museum of Natural Science Natural Heritage Program. Join our conversation this morning with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 or you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. You're listening to Creature Comforts from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we're going to talk about one of the most misunderstood but important animals that calls Mississippi home. It's the bat often associated with blood-sucking vampires. We'll dispel those rumors and talk more about the Mississippi bat with our guest, Dr. Nicole Hodges, coordinator of the Museum of Natural Science Natural Heritage Program. You can join our conversation with your questions and comments. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that if you do miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, ladies. Hope you're doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so Libby, anything that you want to uh, alert us to, upcoming events? Let's see. The Natural Science Museum, the Ripley's Believe It or Not exhibit, is going to open May the 19th. That's okay. a Saturday. I guess Saturday after next. Okay. So mm-hmm. It'll be fantastic. The trails are looking good there. Trails all over the state look good. If you're going to Sky Lake, though, be aware that the um, the boardwalk has water on it right now. The water's a little high in there, so. Sky Lake. Sky was. Lake. That's Wildlife Mississippi's beautiful place, um, and the the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks manages it now. But I think Sky Lake first acquired was first acquired by Wildlife Mississippi. And um, Where's it it's a beautiful. It's got the largest. It's outside. Uh, oh, it's up like close to Isola. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of what the closest little town. Uh, but anyway, in the Delta, and it's got a good website if you want to go and look for Sky Lake, and uh, it's um, a boardwalk going out in an absolutely beautiful cypress swamp that happens to have the largest cypress trees. In Mississippi, and some of the largest in the whole country, they're mm. absolutely gorgeous. And the claim to fame, there's one that has a big hollow area, and it was large enough to have a wedding with five people in it. <laughs> <laughs> and I know somebody that attended, so I think it's true. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, I've walked in it before. It is big enough to have a lot of people in there. All right. Uh, so our guest today is Dr. Nicole Hodges. She's a veterinarian and Ph.D. in wildlife biology, also the coordinator of the Mississippi of Natural Science Natural Heritage Program. So, uh, Nicole, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. First, if you would, tell us a little bit about uh, the Natural Heritage Program at the museum. 
So basically we um, monitor the threatened and endangered species throughout the state of Mississippi. And with all of that information that we collect, we entered into a um, database called Biotics. And that information is then used to process the environmental reviews that we receive from like uh, contractors and engineers. Okay. Uh, we've got an early caller on the line, so we'll welcome uh, Mitch Robinson to the show. Good morning, Mitch. You're on the air. Hey, good morning. How are you guys? Good. Uh, well, thanks for having me uh, call in. Uh, I wanted to let folks know I've been speaking to Libby, and uh, we have our native plant sale up at Strawberry Plains Audubon Center coming up next weekend. It's May 18th and 19th, and this is our annual big spring native plant sale we have up at the Audubon Center. Uh, we're going to have several hundred species of uh, trees, shrubs, vines, and other things that will provide uh, the foundation for food sources uh, for all wildlife, but, you know, of course, here with Audubon, we're focusing on birds. And so I wanted to let folks know about that, and if you all have any questions, I'd be happy to, to answer them about the plant sale and kind of the importance of uh, creating that, that basic foundation and food chain for our, our birds and other wildlife. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about Strawberry Plains Audubon Center, where it's located, and that kind of stuff. Sure. So Strawberry Plains is located just north of uh, Holly Springs, which is about half an hour north of Oxford, between Oxford and Memphis. Uh, we're on Highway 311 and 285 Plains Road is our address. Um, we're actually celebrating the 20th anniversary of both Strawberry Plains and Audubon, Mississippi, which was founded back in 1998 uh, is when we first got started. And uh, through the benevolence of two sisters that grew up here in rural Holly, Holly Springs, Margaret and Ruth uh, Finley, and they decided that they wanted to leave uh, their assets as well as a large property of acreage, close to 3,000 acres actually, um, that was a former cotton plantation dating back to the uh, 1830s and the session of the, the Chickasaws that um, sold their land to the federal government. And so we have a uh, very unique uh, property here that's got several different habitats of wetlands, upland oak hickory forest, uh, restored native grasslands and meadows that we use uh, not just for you know supporting wildlife but also as demonstration uh, gardens and landscapes to be able to educate the public about how you can manage your home or your uh, personal private property for uh, supporting wildlife. And so we are probably best known for our hummingbird festival and we're delighted this year, uh, just a, a quick little blurb, we're going to have uh, Libby and Kathy Shropshire coming up to do the wonderful program about Fannie E. Cook this year. But uh, our Hummingbird Festival falls every year the weekend after Labor Day. And we also have a plant sale during then. And uh, we'll actually double the population of Little Holly Springs from, uh, you know, around 7,000 people uh, that will come up for the the festival for that weekend. Wow, that yeah. many? We're yeah. gonna polish we've got to polish up our acts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Mitch, uh, thanks for calling in and just a reminder that is uh, next weekend, May eighteenth and nineteenth, there's a native plant sale at the Strawberry Plains Audubon Center. And so if we remember we will also uh, give you a heads up on that next week. Uh, we're talking today with uh, Dr. Nicole Hodges about bats. So if you have a question or a comment, you can call us. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show. It's animals at mpbonline.org. So, Nicole, we mentioned at the top of the show that sometimes there are a lot of uh, rumors or, or myths about bats, a, a misunderstood animal. What would you say maybe the biggest myth 
uh, that you've heard about bats that you would want to help us dispel today? That bats are blind. Okay. They are actually not blind. The reason they say that they're blind is because they use a mechanism called echolocation to maneuver through the forest and to uh, eat insects. So that's why they think that they're blind. Mm -hmm. And so tell us what echolocation is. It's basically like a sonar. So basically the animal releases this sonar and it bounces off of objects and comes back to the animal and they can detect it. And so I guess maybe the the way it uh, the contour of the object it hits and the way it bounces back is giving them and they're able to process that that information and and know this is a mosquito versus this is a tree or something. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and so in a, a little tiny brain that's you know can't be any bigger than the tip of your finger, hmm. they can process that sonar. That's amazing to me. Mm-hmm. So is it is it something that audible that humans would be able to hear, or does what what is what are they sending out? What sort of pulse or whatever? I guess is we it? can't we can't detect it. Okay, but then again, that, and so obviously it's their hearing then that gets the re- return feedback, and then their brain processes yes. that. So uh, what about their eyesight? Do do they see well? They oh. see very well. They are capable of seeing. Okay, uh, what maybe some other uh, myths about bats that people uh, uh, often think. Um. They think we have vampire bats in Mississippi, <laughs> and we don't. They're in Central America. Okay. Um, and actually, vampire bats, they are doing a study where they use the saliva from the bat to um, dissolve blood clots, and it's called draculin. So that's really something interesting about the vampire bat. So there really is one, but it, it's, uh, it obviously doesn't turn into something that's going to bite your neck and that sort of thing. Absolutely. <laughs> and they're pretty small, aren't they? I mean, they, they um, go to cows and things. Yeah, right? but to... they're about a medium-sized bat. Okay. But, uh, you know, oh. hand size or yes, something. Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Not like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not the size of Batman, we'll say. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we've got a caller on the line, so why don't we say good morning to Adam in Bay St. Louis. Adam, you're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. Hey, uh, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I'm just curious. How many species of bats do we have in Mississippi? And I'll get off the phone so I can listen to the answer. Very good. Thanks for the call. We actually have detected 15 different species of bats in Mississippi, but there are around three of them that we haven't detected in over 20 years. So it's the yellow bat, the silver-haired bat, and the little brown bat. All three of those species we have only detected once. Um, And we have some that are fairly uh, endangered and threatened. So the gray bat and the Indiana bat are fairly endangered, and the northern long-eared bat are fairly threatened. Okay. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll continue visiting with our guest, Dr. Nicole Hodges, about bats. And so if you have a question for us or a comment, I always like to hear uh, what you've been seeing uh, when you go out and about in the great state of Mississippi. So give us a call. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email the show as well. It's animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back with more after this. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell, here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're visiting today with Dr. Nicole Hodges, coordinator of the Museum of Natural Science Natural Heritage Program, and she's helping us understand more about bats. Uh, If you have a question or a comment and would like to call in and join the conversation, 
The number is one eight seven seven MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Go back to the phones in just a minute, but Nicole, kind of a follow-up uh, uh, before we went to the break, we had a question about the different uh, types of bats that are found in Mississippi. Uh, what are the more prominent ones, the ones that are, are uh, more numerous? The red bat and the southeastern myotis and the tricolor bat. Okay. And in terms of uh, geographically, are they dispersed throughout the state? In other words, could anyone in all parts of Mississippi po- possibly find a bat in their area? Yes. Um, the red bat is found throughout the state of Mississippi, but it seems like South Mississippi has greater numbers of the southeastern myotis. Okay. And again, we were talked about size, and I think the, the, the vampire bat you mentioned is sort of maybe about the size of your hand. Um, is that sort of typical for bats? I mean, what give us an idea of maybe size range of what a small bat to a large bat might be. Okay. Um, so the tricolor bat is the smallest bat in Mississippi. It weighs about six grams. Oh, wow. Um, its wing sp- spread is about 208 to 258 millimeters. So they're kind of really small. Mm-hmm. And then the largest bat would be the yellow bat, but since we don't detect it, the next one is the um, big brown bat. Okay. So it weighs around 19 grams, and its wingspan uh, is 350 to 390 millimeters. So okay. it's much larger wingspan than but, the... Give us an idea, like, are we talking... Uh, when its wings are out, is it still about hand size? When the wings are size? out, it's hand size. Okay. So, but it's aptly named the, the big brown bat. So yes. <laughs> it's our biggest one, and it's about hand size. Yeah. So, so on average, maybe when we think about bats in Mississippi, it would be about the size of someone's hand. Yes. Okay. With their wings spread out. Okay. Um, let's get another call on the line. It's David, who's called in from Horn Lake today. Good morning, David. You're on the air. Uh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I just started listening and um, talking about bats. Uh, I live in Horn Lake, Mississippi, and... They put up a couple of bat houses in our city park to um, try and uh, educate the people and also about the health benefits about bats, about their uh, big insect uh, eaters Mm -hmm. with the West Nine Zika virus. I think you ought to touch on that uh, because about the the mosquitoes and how good uh, insect eaters they are. Thank you. All right, David, uh, thanks for the call. Well, let's uh, follow David's suggestion. Nicole, tell us about uh, the benefits of that. I I frequently get uh, uh, creatures that we talk about on this show that eat either mosquitoes or roaches and and that sort of thing, and I always applaud that. So uh, tell us about uh, bats and and their appetite for insects. Definitely. Um, So a single bat can eat half or more of its body weight in a single night. So they eat a substantial amount of insects each night. Mm-hmm. So it could con- uh, it could control those encephalitis or West Nile and Zika viruses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know a friend of mine uh, went to visit Australia a couple of years ago, and I think he said that th- uh, there they have the same thing where they kind of encourage these colonies of bats for that very same reason is you know uh, insect control and. Uh, anyone who I guess my age remembers the the old fashioned way of a truck spewing 
you know, uh, bug repellent through the streets, and certainly uh, a more natural way with the bats would would certainly be uh, better. I mean, it it keeps the bats healthy, and then it also obviously is better for the environment as well. So, uh, good to hear that they're they're doing that. Um, and let's talk then a little bit too about uh, bat houses, because David mentioned that they had put up some of those at a park in Horn Lake. Um, do do bats tend to enjoy living in a bat house? I mean, is that, if you put one up, are you liable to attract them? Definitely, especially if you put it in the correct location. Um, so usually you want to have a water source. Okay. And you also need to mount them on a 20-foot pole. And the ones that are most successful are the ones where you put them back-to-back and facing it a north-south direction. Okay. Uh, those are the most successful settings for a bat house. Okay, so 20 feet up, uh, facing north to south. Uh, how large uh, of, a, of a structure is, is kind of a typical bat house? Um, Maybe a three feet w- uh, yes. long? Okay. And I've heard those bigger ones are kind of better, right? Yes, Not like those there's, there's some that, there's multiple chambers. You can buy one that's just a single chamber. They're less likely to be used, but if you use the ones that are multiple chambers, they're more successful. Okay. So like a, a bad apartment complex. Yes, definitely. <laughs> okay, we've got another caller on the line. Uh, Eddie's called in today. Good morning, Eddie. Go ahead. You're on the air. Hi. Well, thank you all for being here and providing this information. i got a couple of questions, and they're both kind of odd. I was just wondering, uh, are there any bats in Mississippi that aren't insectivorous or insectivores? Okay. And uh, the other is, when did bats first start showing up in the fossil record? All right. Uh, we'd probably need George Phillips, uh, our yeah, friend well, from uh, the George. museum, on that second one. But um, are that's all... a good question, though. I'd love to know if he yeah, has a definitely. fossil bat. We'll we'll find out. Yeah. All yeah. right. Uh, but what about the idea of are most bats insect eaters? Yes, all the bats in the southeast are insectivorous. Okay. Um, and so, um, other than mosquitoes, what other sorts of insects would they eat? They eat moths, beetles, caddisflies, mayflies. Okay, sounds like they're they're not real picky. That that's good. So they'll, and they, that probably helps out a lot. Uh, we're visiting today on creature comforts with uh, Nicole Hodges. She's coordinator of the Mississippi uh, of Natural Sciences Natural Heritage Program, and today she's helping us understand more about bats. Um, so um, let's see. Uh, we talked a little bit about bat houses. Is there anything else? Do they need to be? I mean, painted a certain color um, and maybe some upkeep. I, I, I would imagine that occasionally you would need to, to kind of clean them out. So uh, if you could tell us a little bit more about uh, uh, bat houses. So whenever you pick a color to paint it, you would want something that's light because if it's something dark, it'll cause it to get hotter. Okay. And you don't want it to get too hot in the summertime. Um, and for maintenance, sometimes like wasps or dirt divers will build nests inside so you would want to clean them out every once in a while. All right. And again, I, bats are are mostly nocturnal, is that correct? Yes, sir. And so would they then be in the bat houses kind of during, during the day? During the day, okay. yes. And then uh, then they come out at night, and uh, and that's when I guess they do most of their feeding and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, uh, with almost anything, too, you want to give them uh, a source of water nearby so that they can have that as well. All right, uh, we've got another caller. Good, We're good getting a lot of calls this morning. That's always good to hear. And it's our friend Sue in Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. You're on the air. Good morning. I'd like to ask Libby a question. I suppose it would be Libby to answer this one. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen any, any bumblebees or uh, or honeybees or wasps. I usually have red wasps, black wasps. There's nothing. I have to see absolutely nothing out here. And I have some pots 
the plants in pots out on the carport, like cucumber plants, they're blooming, uh-huh. and other plants are blooming, and, and uh, but th- they're not being pollinated. I haven't seen a single insect of any kind. What, what's going on? Uh-oh. Do you think that somebody sprayed too much insect spray close to you? Well, I, I, two years ago, I got the county to stop coming up in the driveway and spraying uh, insect, you know, the, uh, yeah. what, the uh, uh-huh. mosquito spray. So, no, there's not been, so that hasn't happened. Be I don't, that. Want, I don't yeah. see anything. That is weird. I would say check with your neighbors and see if anybody else is seeing anything. I don't um, think so. I've certainly got them at my house because I'm a little further south than you. How are your nights? Your nights have warmed up up there, haven't they? Ma'am. How, like, where, or where's Beaumont? What county are you? Beaumont's in the far south end of Perry County. Oh, yeah, so it should, yeah, you've got to be warmer than us. Usually yeah, you have to have warm enough nights plane. for the insects to come out sometimes. But, um, oh, Sue, that's kind of troubling. Because my, my cucumber plants are loaded with blooms, but they're, mm-hmm. not, they're not being pollinated, so. Yeah, you can, there's a technique you can take a, like a paintbrush and, and pollinate cucumbers. I mean, I, I thought maybe but, Yeah, but you don't want to have to do that, yeah. Yeah, you need your insects. I do not have a good answer for you. You know, somebody could have oversprayed. And are there crops grown nearby that might have been sprayed? Can't figure it out. And it's it's been wet enough. Things, you know, like like Kevin just said, everything needs water. (laughs) I have dirt daubers that came last year and built. You know, on, on the wall of the carport, and I don't mind that. I, I don't mind the bugs at all. And yeah. they stop up the wind chimes with building nest inside the wind chime pipes, you know, but I haven't seen anything. This so you year. usually have them. So you've got the right plants to attract them, you think? or Well, just plants out on the, out on the carport, you, mm-hmm. know, you know, vegetable plants, eggplant plants, cucumbers. Are there Are there wild plants in your yard or even cultivated things that might attract them? Sometimes you. You need a variety of those kinds of things. Well, I had all the azalea bushes cut down, and I don't know if that deterred them or not. I don't know. If they, if you had a whole lot of azalea bushes and now you don't, mm-hmm. you may need something out there because they're not going to find just a few, you know, pot plants. You'll need some things in the yard that would get them started that would get that would first attract them well thank you very much yeah so that might help so if you plant something if you you're tired of those um azaleas maybe plant something else that's uh uh, that would attract pollinators okay well thank you okay good luck thanks sue good to hear from you we've got another caller on the line let's uh, visit with uh, megan who's called in from rankin county today good morning you're on the air go ahead Good morning. Thank you. I would like to uh, reiterate, I live in Rankin County, and I will uh, reiterate what the lady was saying uh, from Perry County. I have not seen any bees or uh, pollinators uh, this spring, and I will add to that that the uh, Rankin County sprays uh, a chemical known as permanone Mm -hmm. for mosquitoes, and permanone is lethal to bees. They say that they're spraying in doses that is not toxic, but uh, something is going on, and so Perry County and Rankin County are pretty far apart. So if I'm if I'm not seeing any pollinators, and she's not seeing any pollinators, something is going on. Yeah, you may need to check with your neighbors too, and just kind of confirm. No, I, I live in a subdivision. Are you live in a subdivision? Yes. Yeah, so but, there's no there are no crops 
or anything around me. Yeah, but so, uh, do you are your are your other neighbors are they not noticing any honeybees or um, bumblebees or? I haven't asked them, but I, I mean I'm just observing, and based on uh, years past, I have mm-hmm. crape myrtles that are usually just uh, you know buzzing. It's a little early for the crape myrtles, but but the uh, yellow jasmine didn't have the first bee. Nothing, nothing. Mm. So. Yeah, I'm that's just, unusual uh, because I see I'm here outside Jackson and I've had a lot of bumblebees actually. Hmm. I've noticed that there's. Do you think the cold weather that we had this winter could be uh, responsible? It, that I don't know. I can't imagine that it would have been cold enough to do that. I know that uh, you know when the evenings are still cool, you're not going to have as many bugs active, but things have warmed up so quickly recently. And, I can't imagine well, why you wouldn't have them if I've got them. I would ask around and maybe talk to your county, kind of get some what? idea of what they're spraying and how close they're spraying I, I know to your they're house. Spraying. And, they're, they're spraying yeah. and you think they're spraying it too close to your house? Well, they come right in front. I mean, I'm just I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. You know, they say that the insects have to spray, have to fly directly through uh, the, the mist um, for it to kill them. And I've had this uh, ongoing conversation with them several years. I said, so you're telling me that mosquitoes have to fly directly through the mist for it to kill them? And they said, yes. I said, well, that's probably not half, you know. And I, I like <laughs> Yeah, that's probably not doing them. too good for them either then, yeah. is it? And they, they, have, they have admitted that uh, the spray is not very effective in, in controlling the mosquito population. The, the, the company that, that Rankin County contracted... Yeah. Uh, so, so that's that's uh, why do they even pay the company to spray? Is my question. Yeah, they may be uh, killing everything else in an attempt to get their the mosquitoes. That's such a hard, and I know they get pressure to to kill mosquitoes, but it it needs to be done in the right ways. And I'm certainly not an expert on that. I'll see if we can get somebody to come on the show one day soon. Okay. That can talk to us about. All right, uh, Megan, thanks for your call. Mosquito and also, control. You know, I would suggest, too, that um, attend a Board of Supervisors meeting and, and let them know that you're you know, a concerned citizen. You live in that county. They are the ones that uh, represent you and other people living in Rankin County. And so uh, if you or maybe some of the other neighbors are aware of that situation and are concerned, uh, that would be something certainly that you could uh, bring up to their attention. It might not uh, get any result, but it certainly uh, would be a good place to start to, let again, let them know uh, that the citizens are, are aware of that and, and concerned about what's going on. Yeah, and I would talk to any neighbors so that it's more than just one person data. Okay. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we get back, we will continue talking about bats with our guest. It's Dr. Nicole Hodges, coordinator of the Museum of Natural Sciences Natural Heritage Program. We'll be back with more on Creature Comforts after this short break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're visiting today with Dr. Nicole Hodges, coordinator of the Museum of Natural Science's Natural Heritage Program, and she's helping us understand more about bats. If you'd like to join our conversation with a question or comment, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 
7464. You can email the show as well. It's animals at mpbonline.org. We've got another caller on the line. We're off to Ocean Springs for this call. Linda has uh, called in today. Good morning, Linda. Go ahead. Hi. Um, my beekeeper that I buy honey from, and he did say that the winter was very hard on the bees. Okay. Uh, and, and that they had a struggle, and some you know, he lost some. But uh, I, I do want to say the pollinators, the, the insects that are pollinators, are not out flying at night usually. So uh, the bats wouldn't really be able to get bees and wasps and things no, like no, that. No, no, uh-uh. They don't tend to predate those things. Uh, moths and mosquitoes, and so there are a lot right. of kind of beetles that fly around at night. Yeah. Right. Well, I, at, at, at dusk, when, when it's just beginning to get dark, I watch the bats. It's just amazing. they just just beautiful in yeah. the sky and their little sounds. And, and Isn't that but, fun to watch, watch them swooping? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, it's just fascinating. It's just fascinating. Um, but I do want to mention something. You were losing. Linda, yeah. Uh, if you could maybe give us a call back. It sounds like we're losing your call a little bit, but if we, we would like to hear uh, what you have to say. And so if you could maybe give us just a quick call back, and we'll get a line that's uh, better and we can uh, we can hear you because you were definitely breaking up there at the end of your call. Uh, by the way, a reminder, the phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. Our phone lines are open, so if you'd like to call in and join our conversation, please feel free to give us a call. Uh, so, Nicole, uh, how social are bats? Do they tend to congregate in, in large groups, or are they more solitary? It depends on the species. Um, like the southeastern myotis tend to congregate where the um, tricolor bat, they will roost singly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other species like the raffinus bigger bat, they will congregate in maternity colonies. But then, like the males, they'll roost singly. Okay. And they roost it. A lot of them roost in trees, right, instead yes, of caves. Yes. All right. Well, that, that was another question I wanted to ask is, you know, we talked about the bat boxes, uh, but if it, and that's a man-made thing. But in, in nature, where, where would the bats look for? What kind of uh, structure are they looking for for their is nest the proper term? <laughs> so their um, natural roosts are in the forest. Like the red bats, the last year's species, they are called tree bats, and they will roost in the foliage of the tree, and they'll hang by one foot and kind of flap in the wind. So that's kind of like their camouflage. Or they'll roost in the leaf litter on the ground. Um, so southeastern myotis, tricolor bats, and raffinus bigger bats, their natural roost sites are in what's called a cavity tree, so a hollow tree. And it has to be a tree that's large in diameter. But now that we are losing all of our forest, they are using man-made structures so they can roost in houses or we have noticed that they started roosting in culverts under our highways, the culverts and the bridges. Um, and we do have we do have some caves in Mississippi, but it's not like those up in the Appalachian Mountains. They're uh-huh. not as big. Well, that, that's always interesting to me that how uh, creatures are able to adapt like that. Their natural habitat is is kind of being threatened, so that they have found ways to uh, to adapt. And I guess that's why people might find a bat living in their attic is that they're they're looking for a place to stay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you don't want them in your house, um, and, you know, there are a lot of reasons why you 
probably wouldn't. You you need to be mindful of of closing up all those little cracks. Right. Yep. That's true. We've mentioned that about any kind of creature that happens to get in your attic is that they have uh, an ability to squeeze into very small holes. So I think uh, one of the uh, suggestions we've made in the past is uh, maybe at night uh, Mm -hmm. have someone go up in the attic with a light, and that way any light that's shining through, you can see little cracks and crevices where these uh, creatures might be getting into. I think uh, we've got Linda back on the line. Uh, Linda, thanks for calling back. Uh, Go ahead. I apologize. I I wanted to say my daughter lives in New Orleans, and going back to the overspraying thing, Mm -hmm. uh, some people in New Orleans spray their oak trees for those little black cows caterpillars that really do no harm but they're just they're just in the oak trees so they yeah. spray their oak trees well the, this past uh summer they sprayed the oak trees and uh and we know we picked up dead birds we picked up all oh. kinds of insects um yeah and the overspray it, it it can't help but go from house to house to house i mean it just goes in the breeze and it ki- it kills the birds as well as Everything else, we picked up so many little dead birds from the overspray. Yeah, neighbors anyway. need to speak up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when maybe we don't need to use so many, much chemicals. Maybe we need to, yeah. uh, you know, look into other ways to yeah. control right. insects. Okay. Thank you so much. All right, thanks Thank for your call, Linda. You know, and then that's the point we made earlier, is that uh, here we have uh, bats that are native to Mississippi that we can find in, in most parts of the state, and they're voracious uh, consumers of, of mosquitoes. So uh, maybe maybe some uh, communities might uh, start to, to go for that more natural way of mosquito control because, again, um, you know, I, I joke around, I, I can't believe that all of us in, in my generation actually survived because the strangest thing was when the bug truck would come through spraying that noxious cloud, we would all rot, jump on our bikes and try, try to rot through now, it. I, you know, I recently read, we're getting into the... off. Off of the bats into the mosquitoes, but I recently read a thing about West Nile mm-hmm. and how serious it is. But the mosquito that carries West Nile tends to lay its eggs in, they said, uh, something as small as a bottle cap turned mm-hmm. up the wrong way. Any kind of a, uh, you know, a, a bucket or an old uh, flower pot, things like that in your yard. A really good thing to do to cut back on mosquitoes is to assess your property and get rid of any standing water and we're not talking about large amounts of water we're talking about very small amounts of water mm. usually the mosquitoes are not as big a problem when it's coming from a body of water that have plenty of fish in it okay or salamanders anything that's going to eat the little wigglers but if it's a, a man-made object whether it's a toy in your yard or a bucket or something like that and you need to be careful with your bird baths that you spray those out i usually you know, squirt it out with a hose mm-hmm. fairly yeah. often. So, you know, if we're trying to control that, there are a number of ways, a number of natural ways, and one of them, as you said, Libby, is kind of make sure uh, your yard, and that's one of those things, too, where if you don't police your yard that often, you know, you might not realize that there has been some st- stagnant water there that's a, a good breeding ground yeah. for mosquitoes. We were so. talking about Dr. Rick. That's one of the things he's talked about, too, is that we get rid of any standing water in your yard. Okay. Got a couple more calls to get to. We return to the phone lines, and off to Jackson we go. Evelyn is on the line. Good morning. Go ahead, please. Well, I am interested in attracting bats to my yard. Okay. So we've talked about how to position the boxes and all of that. Boxes better on trees or out on a pole that's in the sunshine. And then uh, also, how do we make a simple water source 
that will attract bats but doesn't attract mosquitoes. <laughs> We've yes. talked about that. How do we manage that? So I don't think that's possible because if you're going to have a water source, you're going to have the mosquitoes. Well, you just have to dump it out. Well, yeah, yeah, and you, that's true. Yeah, use your hose. But if it's permanent, yeah, use your hose and and um, get rid of the water. And if it's uh, you know like when you have water drippers and things, you just need to be mindful of it. But it's easy to tell if they're using it. You just look over there, and if there's a lot of little wiggling activity in your water, then it's time to dump it out and put some mm-hmm. fresh water. But as far okay. as mounting. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to ask about mounting the pole and where, or I would really prefer to put bat boxes 20 feet up in a tree, and I didn't know which way would be better. Unfortunately, it's not a good idea to put it on a tree because predators can get to them. Okay. So it's more than likely that a predator get to them. And also, uh, the tree will have limbs on it, and it's not as open for them to be able to drop out of the box and not hit the limbs. So it's best to put it on a pole, or and you the pole can put. Can be it, under trees, or it needs. To yes, be ma'am, it can be under trees, just as long as um, it's not on the tree. Mm-hmm. But you also can mount it to a side of a building, like if you have a barn or a shed, you can mount it to the side of the building because it doesn't have limbs that will block them from. Can you do it to the side of a house? Yes, ma'am, you can. But then, but then it's hard to do the north-south thing. Yes, ma'am. But you can try it, and they may use it, but most people say they have luck with the north-south thing. Okay. The north-south thing on a pole or on yes, a building. Ma'am. All right. Okay, 20 feet high. Thank you so much. You're right. so welcome. Thanks, Evelyn, for the call. And I'll also say possibly uh, maybe on the top of your house, you know, with a pole, you know, so that it gets up there to the pole doesn't have to be 20 feet high, but something mounted to the top on your roof of your house, uh, maybe that would work as well. Yeah, Evelyn's done her research, though. She's figuring out what she needs to do. I'm glad. Uh, Next on the line, it's Lee from Woodville. Lee, good to hear from you. You're on the air. Go ahead. Good morning. We have three here for George Phillips and for the lady with the bats. Okay. One is the bats. Several years ago, there was an article in the um, local newspaper in the National concerning bats in the northwest, northeastern corridor that were dying off. Wanted to know what was killing these bats and what effect does it have on the bat in Mississippi. Also, Austin, Texas, each year they have a lot of bats that congregate on the bridge, thousands of bats. Do any of these bats ever come through Mississippi on their migration? And the last one is, I think Mr. George Phillips and another gentleman did 35 million years in the Chickasaw hay. Mm-hmm. Well, what about the Pearl, the Ross Barnett, the Tom Bigbee, um, the Homotitty, other rivers here in Mississippi? What type of uh, effect does it have with bats, the migration that they're living? Because we know swallows are related to bats. And they often use these rivers to take mud from. I'm going to hang up and let you all talk about those. Thank right. you. Thanks for the call, for those Lee. questions, yeah. Uh, so, Nicole, I guess, is, was it white nose syndrome that is yes. the primary? Uh, so tell us a little bit about that and, and, and um, how it affects the bats. So um, the bats that are dying in the northeastern part of the United States are dying of white nose syndrome. And basically, this is a fungus, and it started back in 2006, 2007, the winter of 2006 and 
and it has uh, spread across the United States, across 32 states and five Canadian provinces. And basically, well, we're one of the states. Yes, right? we are one of the states. We actually have six counties in the state of Mississippi. We've only detected the fungus. We have not seen any mortality associated with the disease. So basically, this fungus starts irritating the skin of the animal, and it makes them start inching. So in the northeastern part of the United States, they hibernate, and our bats go into torpor, so it's a little different on how this disease affects them. So in the northeastern part, when they're hibernating, the itching makes them wake up from hibernation, and it also causes them to go into what's called respiratory acidosis, and basically that's a a buildup of carbon dioxide in the blood. So they wake up and start panting, and then since they're awake, they start flying around because they've used their energy stores, so they're looking for something to eat to build up their energy. And unfortunately, since it's wintertime, the insects aren't available. So ultimately, the animal oh, starves to death. Yeah. That's the ultimate demise of the animal. It starts with an itch. <laughs> <laughs> Which is unfortunate. But fortunately, down here in Mississippi, we have not detected any mortality. And I really think it's because our winters aren't as severe as what's in the northeastern part of the United States. Mm-hmm. This fungus is a cold-loving fungus, so I feel like we have bouts of t- temperature changes that will kill off the fungus before it bec- can become a problem. Okay. So hopefully that will save us, but... We are detecting the fungus here, so it is here. We just hope to not see any mortality associated with it. Okay. Now, the other question, kind of like migration, do do bats migrate? Would, would for example, the bats that are in Austin yes. ever wind up here? Yes. Yeah, so the bats that he's referring to in Austin, Texas, are called Brazilian free-tailed bats, and we do have Brazilian free-tailed bats here in Mississippi. And they... They have the potential to migrate, but I've heard from one of our bat biologists here in Mississippi that they don't think that ours specifically migrate to Texas or to South America. They think they stay here, but they're not 100% sure. We would have to do a study, like radio telemetry study, to really determine that. When we talk about bat migration, is it similar to bird migration in that it's you going from north to south to get into warmer with that specific species it is but uh, the the other species that are in mississippi they don't travel as far but they do have different types since they have different roosting sites so they have a maternity colony and then they have a roosting site where they roost in the wintertime so they move from those two different locations just a more protected site in the winter so we probably don't get the, the bats from Austin, because they're probably going north and south. Not Okay. Let's take one final break this hour. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We'll wrap up the program after this. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're visiting today with Dr. Nicole Hodges. She is the coordinator of the museum's natural heritage program, and she's been our resident bat expert this hour. Still a few minutes left in the show. If you can work in a quick phone call, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 
888-528-7464. Uh, before the break, Lee called in, and uh, his third question, um, Nicole, had to deal with uh, rivers, and, and, and do bats uh, use rivers, or, or would you find them there? And, and you were telling us that answer is yes. Yes, um, especially the last year species, so the red bat and the Seminole bat, they tend to use that river as a corridor to uh, feed in. And also, I think you had mentioned um, when, when we were chatting during the break a couple of different ways of uh, collecting bats. If you if you are trying to gather them up for study or whatever, uh, if you would uh, tell us uh, quickly about kind of the way you catch a bat. Okay, there's several different ways. So one is mist netting, and basically you put up a net across a corridor where you think they'll fly through, and they'll hit the net, and we collect the bat. And another one is called a harp net. And we recently just harp netted um, at the entrance of a cave. And basically it's a structure that has fishing line on it and they alternate each other. And the bat will fly into the fishing line like they'll, I think they do detect the first one, but when they go through, they don't detect the second one and they hit it and fall into a bag. So that's another type, there's another way where we catch bats. Okay. Uh, also earlier, we have been talking about uh, bat houses, and you said that you, if someone was interested, you could give them some information on, on where to get one. Definitely. Um, Batcon.org, you can order them from there, and they also have instructions on how to build one if you are a carpenter and would like to build your own. Um, you can also buy them at forestry suppliers. I've seen where they have them where you can buy them. Okay. Tell us that website again, Bat... Uh, batcon.org. Batcon.org. Okay, very good. Um, looks like we've got a call on the line, so let's see if we can work this last call in before the show ends, and it's Georgia in Hattiesburg. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Thank you. I have two things. One, year before last, we had bats in the vent of our attic, a bat nursery, and right now we have three different woodpecker species in one tree, and at least two of them have babies. So lots of wildlife going on. <laughs> you got a wildlife-friendly place. Yeah. That's great. Now, all right, the, the bat, the nursery that was in your attic, yeah. did it, it cause... Was, it didn't come in the attic. It was in the vent. A screen, thank goodness, prevented Good. them from being in the attic. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something my husband actually did on his mother's house. The bats had started coming in. And he made like a little box, like a false back almost to the vent that just kept them in there. And so it's sort of like a bat house. It's just Mm. recessed into the attic. Well, that's interesting. What we did was after October 30th, we blocked it when they were all gone. Yes, that's really a good idea to go ahead and build them up. You can put a bat house on the outside of the house, and they'll probably go in there if they're used to going in the vent. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. And the woodpeckers are redheads, pileated, and flickers. Wow. And they're sharing a tree. All in the same tree. (laughs) Great big tree. Yes. Yes. Very tall. (laughs) It strains my neck to get the camera with the telephoto lens (laughs) to take pictures. Oh, that's a good opportunity, though, isn't it? It is. And just a while ago, I saw two beaks peeking out of the of the pileated nest, and then the pileated came to help them take care of, feed them. All right. Oh, that's great. So, 
All right. Thanks, Georgia. Good to hear from you this morning from Hattiesburg. And I know uh, I, th- I heard what I thought assumed was a woodpecker the other day outside of my house, and it drove my cat nuts uh, because I think he was hearing that and he was trying to figure out where exactly it was coming from. Uh, so just a, a minute or so left, uh, Nicole, maybe one last question. Uh, what about reproducing? Do bats have a lot of baby bats when they do, or what's the situation there? Yes, um, most female bats will produce one pup a year, um, but there are some species that will have two to four pups a year. So it varies by the different species. And they usually uh, breed in uh, the fall, and it's called delayed fertilization. So basically they store the sperm, and then in the uh, starting in the, the spring, they'll fertilize the eggs, and then by May to June is when they start having the pups. Okay, so about this time, yes, uh, you, they are people might now. be li- like uh, now. <laughs> oh, they are having babies. All so right. if you have bats in your attic, do not exclude them right now, or the the babies will yes, die. Yes, this will there. be a bad time of year because the mothers will leave <laughs> and go feed and leave the pups up there. And Georgia did exactly the right thing. She waited till the end of August to be sure they were grown, and then she did the exclusion at night when they were out Mm -hmm. i'm sure okay all right that's going to wrap us up for done uh just a quick mention uh may 18th and 19th next weekend there is a native plant sale at the strawberry plains audubon center that's going to wrap us up for today creature comforts is a production of mississippi public broadcasting think radio funding provided in part by wildlife mississippi a statewide organization celebrating more than 20 years of conserving mississippi's lands waters and wildlife and from contributions from listeners like you our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener is Michelle McAdoo. So for Libby Hartfield and our guest, Dr. Nicole Hodges, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned. Up next, it's MPB's Season Pass. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio. <laughs>